I think it's undeniable that most employees anchor their expectations to the last round price. I think that's a problem for several reasons. The first is that, you know, the last round price reflects the value of the company at the time at which that price was set. And, you know, if the, if that was two years ago, then the factors that produce that price just might not be there anymore. Uh, you know, rates have gone up, uh, inflation has gone up. There's a war in Europe. Like there's a lot of reason, a lot of reasons why the company might not be worth what it was worth two years ago. Hey everyone, this is Prashant and I'll be your host for the VC10X podcast and today we have Matthias Pastor with us. Matthias is a co-founder of Semper where they're helping companies and employees make the most of their equity via the secondary market. In this episode, we talk about how Semper helps employees get liquidity by selling their resorts in the secondary markets, how investors can get access to amazing secondary deals on Semper, what employees need to know about employee stock options, questions employees should ask their company when they are being offered ESOPs, how to evaluate an ESOPs offer and lots more. So without wasting any time, let's dive straight in. Hey Matthias, so good to have you on the VC10X podcast. How are you doing? Hey Prashant, uh, thanks so much for having me. You're doing great. How about you? I'm doing great as well. Uh, so good to have you here. Uh, to start things off, can we first have a little background about yourself and why you started building Semper? Pleasure. So um, I'm uh, Mitchell Pastor. I'm one of the co-founders here at Semper. Uh, before starting Semper, my co-founder and I um, used to work at an early stage accelerator between Paris and London. Think of it as a as an attempt at rebuilding some of YC's magic, but in Europe. Um, we were lucky to partner with a lot of incredible founders, including some that did really well um, and grew their their companies to, to be worth several hundreds of millions of euros. Um, and when they reached those kinds of valuations, you know, the handful that, that did came back to us with the same problem several times, which was we have some employees that have been with us since day one. And, you know, we've raised their salary a bit, but mostly they've seen the value of their shares grow in value significantly. And, you know, they keep telling everybody that they have all this, all this equity uh, in the company, but nobody really believes them. And they, they might not even really believe that it's worth what we're telling them it is. Um, and so they'd like to sell some of it to achieve some of their life goals. And those life goals might have been starting their own company. It might have been, um, you know, getting married and planning a great party. It might have been paying off some student debt, putting a down payment for a house, whatever it was. And so we helped them run those transactions in a kind of ad hoc capacity uh, because we'd had the privilege of working with them since their early days. They kind of trusted us with this slightly exotic favor. Um, and then we realized, you know what, there's two trends at play here. One, companies are staying private longer and longer uh, because there's more and more capital being poured into the private markets. And also because as markets become more competitive, it takes more and more time and capital to build a dominant position that you want to be in when you go public. The second is that we're seeing increasing fragmentation in company cap tables. And that's the result of kind of two trends. One, more and more people investing in startups. So as the number of exits increases, uh, you know, people who've worked in companies want to reinvest in the ecosystem. And what we've also observed is just that um, more and more companies are using equity to incentivize their teams. 
And so that creates a tension where you have companies are staying private longer and longer and more and more individuals in these cap tables that don't necessarily have investment horizons that are as long as the companies that they're a part of. Um, and so these companies are all going to run into the issue of managing the secondary market for their shares and offering liquidity to their shareholders. And that's, um, that's why we left where we are working to build Semper. And that's what we're building at Semper now. We're building the infrastructure and the network for companies to be able to provide liquidity to their stakeholders and in particular, their team members. Um, and what that means concretely is, um, is essentially helping them run transactions, run secondary transactions and doing all the heavy lifting on their, on their behalf. But I'm sure we're going to have more time to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a very interesting problem to solve. Uh, providing liquidity to the employees, basically. Is that a good way to put it? Yes. So that's, that's definitely what we're starting with for, for the companies. Um, the idea being that the employees are the shareholders where there's the most complexity to run a transaction because, you know, if your company, typically we work with companies that are worth more than $250 million. If you're a company of that size, you'll usually have employees in different geographies. Um, the equity instruments that you're giving them will vary um, in, in each country. And that means that the way that they're structured won't be the same. The way that they're taxed, both at the company level and at the shareholder level, won't necessarily be the same. So there's a lot of complexity to absorb, and the company doesn't necessarily have you know, the resources to be able to address them directly. Um, and so that's why that's our our first approach with the companies is, okay, we'll help you structure and provide liquidity to, to these shareholders, the, the team members. But then the idea is to become the trusted party for all secondary needs um, that the company might have and to then help them structure liquidity events for angel investors, early investors, and then you know down the line, every single person on the cap table. Great, great. So employees are basically the first step of this big, bigger problem that you're solving that's majorly focused on secondaries and helping the early investors, whether they are employees who have invested their time and energy or uh, the early investors, angel investors, uh, or pre-seed investors who want to get out uh, right at a later stage in the form of secondaries, right? So that's the major vision for where you want to take Semper, correct? Exactly. Um, so, you know, we will always work with companies to help them on the on the liquidity for their team members, but we think there's um, the, the problem is broader um, and is also shared by some of these other shareholders. Great. Uh, so now, now we understand the problem that you're trying to solve. Now let's talk about how, how you're solving it. How, how does it really work, right? So if these companies are working with you, uh, then how, how does the arrangement work and what are you doing for them on a recurring basis? Uh, walk us into that. Sure. So there's... Um, there's three different things to, to what we do, right? Because we work with companies and we work with, well, on behalf of them for their employees. But then on the other side, we also work with investors because, um, you know, liquidity is a fancy word, but at the end of the day, it just means somebody buying the shares, right? And so that means that we need to work with investors to, to find buyers for those shares. Um, and so on the company, um, on the company level, what we do is that we help them define the scope of the liquidity program they want to run. 
So there, you know, the first thing you want to do is, okay, what, who's eligible to participate in this liquidity program? Is it only employees? If it's employees, is it all employees or is it only employees that have a certain tenure, you know, who've been with us for two years, three years, et cetera? Um, is it, do we also include former employees? Um, do we want to include early investors? Like that's defining the scope on the sell side. And then once we've defined who's eligible and what proportions they're eligible, because you might not want your current employees to sell 100% of what they own, right? Like you might think that if they do that, they'll be a bit less incentivized to work hard and make the remainder of their equity be valuable. Um, and so maybe you'll say, we only want them to be able to, sh to sell 25% of their vested shares, for example. So that's the first thing. Then we run a similar process in determining eligibility on the buy side. Um, and so there, you know, the question is, do we want to open this to all kinds of investors? Do we want to restrict it to investors that won't participate in a potential primary? Um, you know, do we want to exclude people who've invested in our competitors? Like there's different parameters that you might want to take into consideration on that front as well. Once we've determined what the parameters for the transactions are. So, you know, in addition to eligibility, you want to also want to determine what the price range you're comfortable with is. Um, and what kind of size you're looking at. So those are like the three the three main things. Um, once we've done that, we move to what we call the investor coverage process. So we've agreed with the company on the on the parameters, and we go to investors um, with the opportunity, and we try to find you know sufficient demand for for that block of shares um, at a price that's uh, acceptable to the company, and then. Once we have these offers from investors and the company has approved them, we run the entire execution process. So we've built the software to be able to execute these transactions um, across borders with different currencies, with different kinds of shares, uh, equity instruments. Um, and we and we help the company run, run all of that. So we onboard all the employees on our platform. They can sign all the contracts. They can share their banking details. Um, and we take care of everything from explaining what the offer is to um, having them sign all the all the documents on the platform to actually receiving the money and the proceeds of their sell. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's very interesting model right there. So uh, who is uh, your core customer or, or the or the or the customer that's paying you? Uh, who is that part of, of this entire thing? That's a, a very good question. Um, and one that's changed a bit since we started. So we started the company at the end of 2021, which was, as far as growth equity is concerned, a very different time. Um, it was very much a seller's market back then. You know, nobody could buy enough uh, shares of growth equity companies. That's changed over the course of 2022. And so we're looking at a, a market that's more favorable to buyers. And as a result, we kind of shifted um, the way we monetize. Um, so initially we were charging so we, we charge transaction fees and about two thirds of the fees were passed on to buyers and a third was paid by sellers. And now we're moving to a model where pretty much all the fees are paid by sellers. Um, so we charge a, a percentage of the transaction volume. Um, it doesn't really impact like economically, it's pretty much the same, whether you put the fee on the seller or the buyer. Um, but, you know, we're in an industry where the optics matter a lot. 
And in a market like this one, it's a lot easier for sellers to understand um, the fees that they're paying than it is for buyers. Yeah, certainly. And uh, when you're saying sellers, do you mean the employees or do you mean the companies? No, so we, we mean the employees. Um, so technically, we actually charge the company, uh, but then the company can decide how they split those costs. Um, and typically what they do is that they pass on the cost to the employees who transact. Um, so, you know, if we so typically we're charging some around 5%, um, the company can just decide that each employee pays 5% of their proceeds, um, to us in order to offset the cost that, that we've charged uh, to the company. Got it. Got it. Interesting. So there is no recurring fees that's there for the companies to work with you, right? It's only based on the transactions that happen, right? Yeah, I mean, we, we charge a small retainer to the companies um, just to make sure that they're committed to running the process. Um, but outside of that, the majority of our fees are in the form of transaction fees. Um, and, you know, the, the main intuition there is that at least as far as the secondary product is concerned, um, the value... There is value to the company because they're um, able to attract and retain better talent by making their compensation more attractive. Um, but the majority of the value is still perceived by the transacting parties, whether that's the buyer or the seller. And so, you know, you want to align your your pricing model with uh, where the value is created. Yeah, certainly. Uh, and l let's talk about the kind of uh, deals that can that the investors can find if they're working with Semper, right? So maybe you can state some of the kind of companies that you're working with. Uh, what are the kind of secondaries that are uh, out there on sale uh, on your platform? Uh, basically, the kind of deals that investors can get access to at Semper. Yeah, 100%. So, um, you know, we, we focus on companies that are valued pretty broad, uh, pretty broad range that I'm going to give, but usually they're valued somewhere between $500 million and $5 billion. Um, and an easy way to model the kind of transaction that we work on, you know, if you take the medians, probably somewhere around a billion dollars, um, you know, the typical company that we work with will have given out 10 to 20% of its equity to employees. And in any given year, we expect about 10% of that to transact through us. Um, so we're typically looking at 10 to 20 million per company per year in terms of secondary transactions. Interesting. So uh, the investors don't have to pay you anything at this point to work with you, right? To get access to these deals. No, we, we don't charge, um, we don't charge any, um, any fees um, upfront to investors. And is there a fees later on if the transaction takes place? I believe it's the it's the seller who is paying, uh, not the investor, right? Yeah. So uh, at the moment, um, indeed, on the most of the transactions that we're working on, uh, the fees are are passed on to sellers. Um, but you know that that might change. But we're always very transparent about the fees that we charge. Um, what we don't charge is we don't charge any management fees, and we don't charge any carry. Great. Uh, so also let's talk about how are how is the value of these uh, shares determined 
uh, while you're m making the sale. Is there any kind of negotiation also taking place that investors say, okay, I'm willing to buy it at this rate, but not at this rate? Or is it a fixed price that you determine based on the valuation and they can buy it or not buy it at that rate? So that's an excellent question. Um, and I think it's particularly relevant in, in today's market. Um, if, if you take, if you go back two years, the funding rounds were happening at m within much shorter intervals. So we were seeing companies raise, you know, sometimes several times within the space of 12 months. And so the last round price was a decent indicator of the value of the company. Um, and it was a decent indicator of the shareholders reference points um, as far as their willingness to sell was concerned. What's happened now is that many of the growth companies that we're working with haven't done a primary in you know well over 18 months in many cases because they raised on very generous terms in 2020 or in 2021. And given the markets feel a bit more hostile right now, have decided to postpone their raise as much as they can. Um, and here you kind of have two conflicting effects. On one hand, you know, these companies have for the most part grown. So sometimes they haven't grown as fast as they'd grown in the past or as fast as they'd wanted to, but they've still grown. Um, and so that might command a higher valuation than the last round price. But on the other hand, a lot of the public comparables that these companies are now being valued against have seen their multiples, you know, go down, if not completely collapse. And so depending on the subsector that you're in, um, one or the other of the, of these effects might dominate, um, you know, to be fully candid in most cases, the multiple compression will affect you a lot harder than the growth on your top line or in your profitability. Um, but you still have these two effects at play. And what that means is that you can't rely solely on the last round price to determine the price at which this should transact. And so as a result, you know, we share the last round price as one of the elements on which investors can, can make up their mind. Um, but we really think that it's, it's the wrong framework given how much markets have changed over the past 18 months and the world more generally has changed over the past 18 months. Um, it's the wrong framework to look at these companies. And so what we do is that we tell investors, listen, we're going to give you all the information that you need to conduct proper due diligence. Um, as if this were a primary investment, you know, um, we think that one of the big problems in the secondary market right now is that most of the trades are being done either by insiders or by people who have no access to information. And so we give them all the information they need to make up their mind. And then they come to us with prices. So they say, listen, I've done my work. Um, I understand where the company is at. I understand where the market's at. Um, you know, we organize management calls where the CEO and the CFO typically introduce the company and address the, the most frequently asked questions. So they have, they have time to hear from management. Um, and then they come back to us and they say, I'm a buyer of $10 million at $12 a share. Um, and somebody else comes and says, I'm a buyer of $8 million at $15 a share. Uh, and then we go back to the company with these offers and the company picks who they want, uh, who they want on their cap table, essentially. So it's, it's really a, a market driven, uh, approach. Um, and it's more driven by the current performance of the company and, 
you know, broader market factors than it is by last round price, um, which, which at this point in many cases, if not most has lost its relevance. Yeah, certainly. And does it not present another problem that employees would probably expect that we'd get a price based on the previous valuation of the company? But now, since you have given that ball in the court of investors, they have the power to determine the price. And most likely that valuation, especially in the current market, will be lower than the previous round, right? Uh, but if the company goes on to raise the next round, they will most likely raise it or want to raise it at a higher valuation, right? So if you look at it from the employee's perspective, what if they don't get the fair price that they deserve, right? Uh, there's there's a lot of interesting points there. Um, I think it's undeniable that most employees anchor their expectations to the last round price. I think that's a problem for several reasons. The first is that, you know, the last round price reflects the value of the company at the time at which that price was set. And, you know, if the, if that was two years ago, then the factors that produced that price just might not be there anymore. Uh, you know, rates have gone up, uh, inflation has gone up. There's a war in Europe. Like there's a lot of reason, a lot of reasons why the company might not be worth what it was worth two years ago. Um, and, and that can be seen in public companies, right? There's a lot of companies that were worth considerably more than they are worth now. The second thing is that typically what we call the last round price isn't the last round price for any kind of shares. It's the last round price for the most senior kind of shares. And a lot of companies, when they're speaking to their employees, take the shortcut of saying, we've just raised that $15 a share. Um, and so your shares are worth $15. But the reality is that they sold Series F preferred shares at $15 a share. And those shares might come with a lot of rights that the employee shares don't have, right? So like typically employees have options that convert into common stock. Common stock has no kind of downside protection. It doesn't have any guaranteed IRR. It usually has limited information rights, limiting uh, voting rights, et cetera. And so even, you know, if the overall enterprise value of the company might not have changed, it's unlikely that the value of the common share would be the same as the last round preferred share. Um, and so that's something that we have to spend a bit of time educating employees about, but to be honest, also the company about, because not everybody, and especially in Europe, and I think you know this is a big difference between more educated markets when it comes to equity matters and, and less educated markets, but a lot of people don't necessarily appreciate that point. Um, and so we have to spend some time educating them there. Um, and then I'd say as a, as a last point, at the end of the day, the nobody's ever forced to sell. So if the employee decides um, that the price doesn't reflect what they believe is the fair value of the company, then they can just say no. And the great thing about the way in which we partner with companies is that we get them to commit to a frequency at which they run these transactions. And so typically we're looking at one transaction every six months or one transaction every 12 months. And so the employee can kind of have the peace of mind of saying, okay, I don't think the market is correctly valuing my company at this point. So I'll just sell next year. I'll just sell next semester. Um, and, you know, we're not at all, like we have every intention of partnering with these companies over the long run. And so we have no incentive on pushing anybody to sell if um, if they don't think it's the right time to do so. 
That's great. And uh, that that's an important part you mentioned there about education. And I feel that that part is seriously lacking, especially when it comes to employee stock options, right? Because companies, maybe for their own incentive, try to game the system and not communicate clearly enough or enough uh, about all the things that are involved in employee stock options. Like, like when an investor is getting shares in a company by making an investment, there is a lot more details there in the term sheet and everything, right? But when an employee gets the offer to like get the employee stock options, there's generally what happens is there's just a single sheet of paper that's given out that you're being granted these many shares. And there is a lot of uh, things that are not clear, right? And most employees do not ask for the details as well because they're not aware that there are more details there as well, right? So if I ask you this question uh, that if an, an employee is being offered stock options, what are the key things that they should be looking for or asking for to get full clarity of what is actually being offered and what they can actually expect over a period of time? It's an excellent question. It's one that we think about quite a lot because there's a trade-off between um, asking questions that are simple enough for everybody to understand and actually be able to do some work on um, and and then asking all the questions that you need to be able to, to cover um, to cover the topic. So, you know, the very basic thing that a lot of companies aren't transparent about is they issue they give you so they give you an option with a certain strike price and they give you no indication whatsoever on what that strike price means. There's two main elements there. One is what's the strike price relative to the last round price? So you want to understand, you know, I'm being given this option that converts into common stock. Am I being asked to pay the same price that the investors recently had to pay for the preferred stock? Or am I getting that option at a discount because the share that I'm buying has less inherent value than the preferred share? That's the first question on 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 the strike price. And then the second question is, okay, I'm being granted um, an, an option at that strike price. What's the implied valuation of um, of that strike price? Because you know, if you want to understand the odds of the company that you're working at becoming a $100 million company or a $500 million company or a billion dollar company or a $10 billion company, you need to understand what basis you're starting off, right? Because you, what you want to know is, is it likely that this share is going to be worth 10 times its value or 50 times its value or 100 times its value? And if you don't know if the company, you know, the implied valuation of your option is 10 million or 100 million or a billion, it's impossible understand what the odds of getting that multiple are because you know if you're working at a company that's um that's already valued a billion dollars and your options are being granted at that valuation you know the odds of you doing 50 or 100x are really really low because there aren't that many 50 billion or 100 billion dollar companies um if you're working at a company um and you're being granted options at a materially lower price then you have you have much higher chances um, the second thing that you want to understand is, you know, to the extent that you can and the comfortables, the company is comfortable sharing that information, is understanding what the liquidation preference stack above of you is. And the liquidation preference stack, um, in to, to be, you know, to, to explain in simple terms is when companies raise money, usually they issue new classes of shares. So 
when you raise a Series A. Typically, you'll issue Series A preferred shares. When you raise a Series B, you'll issue Series B preferred shares. And one of the rights that these shares come with is the claim to being paid back first or second or third um, if the company gets acquired. And the more you raise, the more prefer preferred shares there are that get paid before you um, as a common stockholder. And so it's very different to join a company that's worth $1 billion but has $500 million worth of preferred shares on top of the common than it is to join a company that's how that has the same valuation, but has only raised 50 million or a hundred million. Because if the valuation goes down by 50% in the billion dollar case, in the $500 million raised case, then the company is worth as much as the money it's raised over its lifetime. And potentially the common ends up being worth zero. Um, whereas if the company is raised materially less, then the common can still be worth something. Um, so I'd say those are the two questions you really want to be sure about. Um, and then the last question, which is equally important is, and people don't necessarily appreciate is companies as a standard right now, typically allow their employees only 90 days after they leave the company to be able to exercise their options. That means that 90 days after the day you've, you've left, either you've paid the money you owe the company to transform your options into shares or those options expire. And a lot of people don't really think about it, but if you're joining a company and especially if it's a later stage company, that amount could be very material. Like it could be thousands, tens of thousands, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars that you need to get out of your pocket to be able to buy the shares. And very few banks will lend you money to do that. And so what you want to do to the extent it's possible is first join a company that gives you more time um, to exercise your options. And if it's not the standard policy, then try to negotiate um, for, for you to have more time to be able to, um, to exercise those options. I say those are the three key things. Um, and then there's a lot of other things. Um, we're, we're actually writing a lot of content at Semper uh, about that that we'll be publishing over the next couple of weeks um, so that employees can be a bit less lost uh, when they're negotiating the the equity part of their compensation yeah yeah this is su super insightful I'll, I'll i'll also make sure to like just put out this particular section of the entire episode as a separate video for people out there who are looking out for these answers but they don't have the right person to talk to right so this is super helpful for people who are being offered employee stock option, stock options but they are pretty much clueless what that really means and most of them simply accept it because they're not sure if they should be asking those questions or not. Are they entitled to that information or not, right? There are so many questions in their head. So most of them just accept it. And later on, when the time comes, then they think that, okay, I was kind of tricked in a way. <laughs> and they don't feel good at that time, right? Great. So uh, now let's talk about, uh, are, there, are there any challenges that you're facing uh, while running things at Semper. I know there are three pieces to this puzzle. There are employees, there are, there are companies and investors. Uh, what are the biggest challenges that you face while running this entire show? Yeah, I mean, we, we face a lot of challenges. Um, you know, I think we're, we're lucky to be at the middle of a lot of very interesting things, um, but they're also not the 
necessarily the, the easiest things. And so there's a large part of what we do that comes down to, to some form of education. Um, I'd say the biggest challenge over the past year has definitely been um, the gap between what founders and employees thought or think their company is worth and the pay, the price that investors are willing to pay for those for those shares and those companies um because you know you you mentioned it earlier but employees really and founders really anchor to the last round price um when they're thinking about the value of their equity um but investors react much more quickly um and you know they see what's happening in the public markets um they see what's happening elsewhere and and they readapt their expectations super quick. And so over the course of 22, you know, we saw that gap shrink. Um, but that was definitely, you know, the biggest challenge for us was kind of being the bearers of bad news for the companies saying like, hey, you know, you might not like what you're hearing, but it doesn't seem like you're worth 50 times revenue like you used to be a year ago. Um, the expectations have shifted a lot with investors um and you know we had many situations where the companies didn't think that that change of environment applied to them and they went out to the market and to their own investors um saying like hey you know we're thinking of doing a fundraising or we're thinking of doing a secondary um what price are you thinking and um they would come back with the same answers that we had uh, and then they'd come back to us and say, like, actually, you know what, you're right. Um, it does seem like it's a different world out there. And and we really feel like there's two elements to this. You know, like when we speak to investors for our own purposes, so to fundraise a semper, one of them, you know, one of the frequent comments that they have is, you know, aren't you negatively impacted by the broader macro environment? And what we tell them is, well, there's really there's really two elements to the macro environment. There's the macro environment in the sense of interest rates and inflation and uh, publicly traded tech companies' valuations, which they, they are what they are. We can't really do anything to, about that. And then there's another element, which is more sentiment. So it's like investors being optimistic about tech as an asset class, and it's employees and founders at tech companies understanding that the world isn't the same. And, you know, we're, we're not super optimistic in the short term about interest rates going down and inflation going down and you know tech valuations going to the moon but we are very optimistic about the fact that companies you know whether it's the employees or the founders are going to understand that the world has changed and that as a result you know they they should be willing to accept slightly lower valuations than than what they were hoping for uh, but that's definitely been our our biggest challenge for the past year. Yeah, yeah, certainly that's that's very understandable. Uh, founders and even employees would never want that valuation number to go down. They always want it trending upwards, right? And that's how their incentives are aligned. But yeah, like you said, it's also important to consider the market situations and how everything changes based on uh, the market environment, right? So. Great. This this was an awesome con conversation on employee stock options and secondary markets, founder investor expectations and how to balance them. And love that you're doing this work out there uh, to match these expectations and make these you know deals happen to provide liquidity to 
employees before there is an ultimate exit event or a buyback, right? So great work that you're doing there and hope that you keep doing it and also expand into different areas within the secondary market. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and just let me know where can our listeners check out what you're building at Semper, whether they're investors, founders, or employees, and where can our listeners follow you? Yeah, thanks. I mean, first, thanks so much for having me. It was a, it was a great conversation. Uh, I hope some of it was useful to the people listening on the uh, on where to follow us. So our website is is meetsemper.com. Um, and there there's content for, for both investors um, and um, companies. So whether it's, it's founders or, or employees. Um, and then most of the team um, is active on, on both LinkedIn and, uh, and Twitter. And so you can follow me on LinkedIn is just my name, Matthias Pastor. Um, and then on, on Twitter, Pastor MHM. Um, and I always reply to, to DMs and emails. So happy to do uh, to do that as well. Yeah, that's great. I'll make sure to put uh, all those links in the show notes below so that our listeners can get there easily. Uh, thanks so much for uh, coming on, Matthias, and love the work that you're doing. And uh, thanks for sharing all the in- insights that you did. Uh, I certainly learned a lot of things from the episode and I'm sure our listeners will also get some value from the episode. Thanks for coming on. Have a nice day. Thanks, Prashant. Take care. Same to you.